Additional support for today's Heat Treat Radio episode is provided by Furnaces North America 2020, the virtual show. This year's one and only all Heat Treat conference and exhibition. Find out more at www.furnacesnorthamerica.com. Welcome to Heat Treat Radio. I'm your host, Doug Glenn, publisher of Heat Treat Today. This past June 2020, AMS 2750 released Revision F. But what does that mean to you? We caught up with AMS 2750F committee participant Andrew Bassett to find out. Our conversation about this revision will stretch over three episodes, with the first dealing with thermocouples and sensors, the second dealing with system accuracy tests, and the third temperature uniformity surveys. This first episode will be all about thermocouples, sensors, and calibration. So let's get started. So Andrew, welcome to Heat Treat Radio. We're excited to have you to discuss this AMS 2750F revision. If you don't mind, why don't you take a minute and introduce yourself to our listeners? Andrew Bassett, president and owner of Aerospace Testing and Pyrometry, headquartered out of beautiful Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I've been in the aerospace pyrometry field for going on, looks like about 30 years now, after graduating college at Davis Nelkin College in West Virginia with a degree in communications. I discovered myself that I would uh, end up starving in radio broadcasting, which my my field was, and got involved with a company called Pyrometer Equipment Company, which is a family-owned pyrometry business, and they uh, needed some uh, help as they were expanding operations. And my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, uh, father had started the business in 1956. And that's how I got my break into pyrometry. It's also the time when NADCAP was starting to put its foothold on the aerospace industry and kind of self-taught myself in the, the ways of aerospace pyrometry. And Spent many years getting to know the specification and understanding what the requirements are, dealing with the auditors themselves and having them teach me about uh, what they look for during audits and kind of taking that knowledge with me for the last 26 years. So we've uh, <clears throat> so back after I left the family business, I, I be, uh, worked for another startup company in, in the field of pyrometry. <laughs> Uh, I left that company, worked for a large commercial heat treat uh, based in the Southeast as their pyrometry director. Uh, and at that time, really started feeling like I wanted to start my own pyrometry business. So in 2007, I uh, started aerospace testing and pyrometry and kind of went, uh, was kind of doing it part time for a while. And then finally in 2009, uh, decided to go full force with ATP and to this day now, it's just not me anymore. There's 16 of us in the company that uh, spread from coast to coast, taking care of pyrometry services, as well as other things we have branched off to, branched off in uh, with ATP. I call it our four-headed monster right now. We have our pyrometry services, which includes you know calibration and uh, testing of thermal processing equipment. Uh, we do get involved with other testing, as well as uh, like vacuum measuring systems for vacuum furnaces. We've done uh, temperature and, uh, excuse me, humidity, uh, pressure gauges. Uh, we've gotten involved with different types of calibrations as well. 
Um, we also have our laboratory, which is based in uh, Ohio, which we can do calibrations of uh, secondary and field test equipment, secondary standards and field test equipment. And then we have our consulting and training arm. Uh, so we have a full-time NADCAP auditor, uh, ex-NADCAP auditor on staff who uh, is able to assist our customers with pre-assessments of NADCAP audits. So AMS 2750 is the main aerospace uh, material specification delve in pyrometry. Uh, and if you actually try to do a Webster's Dictionary search on pyrometry, it's a made-up word. Okay. So what we basically have interpreted that as is the calibration and testing of thermal processing equipment, how um, how heat-treating equipment and any type of thermal processing when it comes to testing will fall under the specification. Now, 2750 has also now been adopted by other it's not just a heat treating um, specification anymore. Two years ago, I think it was two years ago, um, the FDA has now adopted AMS 2750. So those uh, facilities that are heat treating medical implants or dental drill bits, they will now have to follow the requirements of AMS 2750. The one industry that kind of walked away from this specification is the automotive industry. They do have their own uh, requirements called CQI9. and uh, I always make the joke of, uh, you know, one good thing about AMS 2750 and dealing with aircraft, uh, we don't see planes falling out of the sky, but we see that uh, there's a little bit more recalls on automobiles on recalled parts. So I'm kind of wondering why they would run away from the spec and maybe they should adopt it. Just as a little preview for our listeners, Heat Treat Radio will be doing probably a th- uh, two to four part series, similar to what we're doing here with Andrew on CQI9. So stay tuned for that. Now, Andrew, how, how exactly did your company get involved with AMS 2750? When they started to revise, and this goes back several revisions ago from revision C to revision D. Revision C, I always said, was the Bible. You can give it to 100 different people and you get 100 different interpretations. So it was a much needed change uh, needed in Rev D. Uh, and at this time in my career, I only had about eight years experience in pyrometry. But, you know, I have to live, read this this document day in and day out. So I approached uh, several members of the AMS 2750D team at that time uh, to get involved with the spec. And I was, you know, didn't have the, the great experience like some of the other um, members of the team uh, who were from Boeing and Body Coat and Carpenter Technology and other uh, folks. Uh, and they said, well, we kind of have our team set into place. Uh, we'll, we'll uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll ask you questions if we need anything. So I really didn't hear much from them. Uh, one of the team members did keep me posted of some of the changes. So when it came to Rev E, I heard that there was rumblings that they're going to go revise the spec again. And so at this time, I decided to go attend an AMEC meeting. AMEC is the basically the think tank of all the AMS specifications um, that uh, that are dealt with. AMEC stands for the Aerospace Metals Engineering Committee. And then the various AMS specifications are falls under various uh, commodity groups. Uh, and I believe it's A through H or something along that. AMS 2750 is actually owned by Committee B for an SAE. So AMS, the AMS guys write the specifications, the committee, the commodity committees uh, own the specifications, and then um, that's how this that process works. So I did attend my first AMS meeting um, uh, the chairman at the time was a gentleman from Lockheed Martin, and uh, uh, they're always uh, the AMEC meetings, or anybody can uh, join them uh, and be a part of them. 
but at that meeting, he asked who I was and what my background was. And I said, well, I, you know, I told him who I was and wanted to get involved with this specification. And he said, by all means, you need to get involved with this specification. Since you do this for a living, I think we'd like to have that perspective. So that's how I got on uh, the AMS 2750 team for Rev-E. And then uh, I'm still young enough and dumb enough to keep going on the, the, this revision of RevF and probably be around for the next revision after that. So, <laughs> Glutton uh, for punishment. Yes, absolutely. So uh, so that's how I got my start in AMS 2750. So I did have my inputs in both the specs. We had a great team for RevF, included myself, Doug Madsen from Boeing, who has since just retired. We had Marcel Cooperman, who's a staff engineer for heat treating uh, for PRI, uh, <clears throat> PRI NADCAP. Uh, we had a gentleman, Cyril Bernalt from uh, uh, Saffron Aerospace. He's also the uh, Heat Treat Task Group Chairman for uh, in, in NADCAP. We had Brian Reynolds from Arconic. Uh, we had Douglas Schuler from uh, NADCAP Auditor and Pyro Consulting, and we had uh, James LaFollette from GeoCorp. So we had a we our team was consisted of people across various parts of the industry. Um, you know, from our conic standpoint, we were looking from the raw material producers. Uh, obviously, with GeoCorp, it was from the thermocouple side of things. From uh, Cyril Bernal being in, uh, based in France, we wanted the European influence of, you know, what's going on over there. So we had a good broad <clears throat> range of people uh, from various sectors of the industry that were involved with the specification. One of the things that uh, when I first got involved with these specifications, I always had it in my mind that it was uh, these specifications were written by the aerospace primes, and that's not the case. It, it does people, you know, such as myself, who's an end user of this specification. Uh, I'm an end user, so you know, I, I'm able to, to you know put in my input and say, hey, you know, uh, this doesn't make sense. This is not real world. Uh, you know, what you want to add into the spec is not real world. So it's it's nice that people uh, such as us get involved with these specifications. Okay, Andrew, that's great. Let's talk about the main sections of this specification. Can you break them down? What are the main sections? I mean, it's really there's only uh, five really sections of the specifications, which is uh, you can break it down into the thermocouples. You can break it into the second section would be calibrations and process instrumentation, or thermal processing classification, I should say. Uh, then you have your SAT, system accuracy testing, and TUS, which is temperature uniformity surveys. And the very last uh, five or six paragraphs are on the quality provisions, what happens if you have a failed test. So that's really the five, you know, the five main sections of AMS 2750. So focusing on the topic of this episode, thermocouples and sensors, let's highlight some of the profound changes that have been made in REV-F. First, what are the biggest changes regarding thermocouples and sensors? Okay, I think two, two of the bigger changes is we addressed uh, some different thermocouple types that were not addressed in previous revisions of the spec. So in RevF, we added, um, we actually gave it its own thermocouple designation, was a type M as in Mary, uh, which is actually a nickel-nickel-moly thermocouple. Uh, these thermocouples have been around for a, a long period of time, uh, but uh, we do know that there's, they're being used in the aerospace application, especially at very high elevated temperatures. It's uh, uh, more cost-effective than going into the platinum or the noble-based thermocouples. Um, so type M was and uh, uh, was one of the newer thermocouples we added. We also addressed uh, the use of uh, RTDs, 
which is, again, um, something that uh, we do have seen in the aerospace uh, industry for quite a while, especially, uh, again, as I mentioned before, this is a crossing over into not just heat treating, but also into the chem processing world. A lot of these chem processing tanks use RTDs uh, to measure tank temperatures. So we said we better address these uh, these type of thermocouples. And then we also added um, refractory thermocouples, which, again, people weren't all that familiar with unless you're dealing with the hot isostatic pressing, the HIP process. We're seeing more and more of the, the HIP furnaces out there now uh, with all the additive manufacturing that's going on. People are, uh, as, as, as we've seen, adding HIP furnaces everywhere. And a lot of those HIP furnaces are coming uh, with type C uh, thermocouples uh, because they are rated for these elevated temperatures that the HIP process do. Um, I think the, the type C thermocouples are rated close to 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So we had to add some of these extra sensors that have been kind of around for a while, uh, just but we wanted to bring them out a little bit further. Um, uh, we also, one of the other changes I would say that was pretty uh, significant, um, but I don't think it really will affect the industry all that much, is that now we required uh, your thermocouples to be accurate to what's called special limits of error. Uh, the previous revision allowed... Uh, for two different types, you're allowed special limits of error, which uh, the accuracy is plus or minus two degrees Fahrenheit or 0.4% of reading. And that was only uh, required for a system accuracy test sensor or for uh, a sensor that was being put in a class one or two furnace. And then all other sensors for such as TUS and load sensors and for class three through six, we allowed for standard limits of error, which was plus or minus four or 0.75% of reading, whichever is greater. We did some polling of some of the major thermocouple uh, suppliers out there. Um, and my personal experience and uh, some of the other uh, uh, people that were on the committee, we all kind of said, hey, you know what? No one really orders the, the, the junky stuff, the, the standard limits. Everyone orders special limits of uh, error. Uh, James LaFollette was like, you know what, come to, you know, he was on the committee and said, come to think of it, I don't think I've ever seen a purchase order that says, give me the, the crappy stuff. Let's, let's, uh, what we all, we all order special limits. So, you know, that's what we kind of discovered is that no one, you know, was ordering the, the bare minimum because there wasn't a price difference between the two. So everyone's already been ordering the good stuff. So we just made that a little bit uh, of a tighter requirement. Again, I don't think it's uh, it's effect, it's not going to affect any any suppliers out there. But the, I think the biggest change uh, when it came to thermocouples and sensors was we uh, put a big restriction on what's called expendable uh, test sensors, and it was dealing with the base metal thermocouples. That's uh, base metal thermocouples are type K, type J, type T, type N. Uh, type M. Uh, there's a couple other type uh, base metals, but primarily in the heat treating uh, thermal processing world, it, it's pretty much you see the K, J, N, and T. Um, so we had done some studies uh, as AMEC, uh, as a sub team of 2750, looking on the drifting of thermocouples, where thermocouples start to lose their accuracy. In the previous revision, uh, we had some provisions in place that allowed people to use these expendable thermocouples. Uh, let's say that that's attached to a temperature uniformity survey rack and they're preserved and um, they could use them, you know, up to three years or 90 usage when below 1200 degrees. And we said, you know, that's kind of seems kind of excessive on on, you know, a 20 gauge wire that's covered with uh, uh, fiberglass uh, coating. 
you know, they, they're going to, you know, they're probably not going to hold up, but maybe we should see if there's any drifting of these thermocouples. So we had one of the major thermocouple suppliers, um, Cleveland Electric Lab, run some drift studies on uh, type K thermocouples. And we found out these uh, wires actually were starting to drift after three or four runs. The drift study included these cycling tests where they run it up to temperature and back down 30 different times. And I said, hey, you know, why don't we why don't we try to more simulate how these burn, uh, these thermocouples are going to interact is, you know, coming in and out of a thermal processing equipment. So why don't you pull them out every single time and do it that way? And again, we found that thermocouples were drifting even further and even quicker. So at this point, we decided, hey, you know what, we better put a restriction on this. And that gave probably the most... Uh, uh, the biggest uproar regarding the reuse of these thermocouples. We basically, uh, previous drafts before this release, the final release of the spec was if it's used above 500 and your expendable wire, it is one and done above 500 degrees. So a lot of, a lot of the suppliers out there came screaming and said, this is going to cost us millions and millions of dollars more in thermocouples. Um, we stood firm, uh, He's saying, hey, look, you know, if you're using these test thermocouples to validate your furnaces, either through a system accuracy test or uniformity survey, you really don't not know uh, what your your error of that wire is after the first use. Uh, most of the major thermocouple suppliers actually even will state on their certifications that they will only guarantee the accuracy at time of calibration. Once it goes sees a furnace, atmosphere, uh, uh, different conditions of the furnace will affect the wire. So, you know, we we kind of stood our ground, but we we ended up backing off a little bit. So we did allow for, uh, if you're using them strictly below 500, you're allowed to use them for three months, uh, 90 days, uh, with not going to have to keep a log. Uh, if you're using them between 500 and 1200, we're going to say, yep, you can use them for 90 days, but now you're only uh, restricted to five usages. And then again, above 1200, you use it once and throw it away. So those were, you know, that was probably the biggest um, uh, hassle trying to, you know, get that. We did finally compromise on that three month, five usages. It, it's, it's a lot, you know, it's still, uh, I, I do see the burden bit on the suppliers because they were used to three years or 90 usages. So now it's down to three months or five usages. Yeah. Which is, a, which is quite different. And I see on the uh, chart that I've got here in front of me, You've got the base metal types of M, T, K, and E are all the three-month or five-use, but you've also got base metal type J and N, which is three months or ten uses. Correct. But all of both of them, all of them above 1,200, one and done. Correct. So that's one of the things I was trying to explain to some of the suppliers that were having heartache about the, the original change of 500, one and done. We only left it to the types uh, M, T, K, and E. We always left this out of types J and N. And, you know, my personal experience has been we've switched over to type J wire um, a while ago for testing below 1,200 degrees. First of all, it's a, a little bit cheaper in price than the type K wire. So, but there was always this, you know, allowance for you can double the amount of usage if you just switch over to types J or type N. We'll come back to Andrew Bassett of aerospace testing and pyrometry very soon. But before we do, let me first share some need-to-know details about this year's Furnaces North America, the virtual event. With never-before-seen low rates, you can send your entire heat treat team to the show to attend technical talks, meet and network with industry-leading suppliers, 
and develop relationships with helpful people in the heat treat industry. You can also stop by our booth and say hello. With these super low rates, consider the benefits of being able to easily navigate the show, gather resources from exhibitors, and engage in chats via messenger or on-demand video sessions. It's a digital world, but you can still have your handshake impression. Plan to attend. The event will be live from September 30th through October 2nd, and you and your entire team can register by going to www.furnacesnorthamerica.com. Check it out. Now let's get back to Andrew as he tells us about the second element of the AMS 2750F thermocouple revision, instruments. So we have a few significant changes in the area of calibrations. What's another area of change in this section? So one of the big things which really surprised me when we wrote it into the standard, but was kind of overlooked by some of the suppliers, was that we require, um, we're requiring that your test instruments have to have a 0.1 readability. So um, when it deals with test instruments and also now data acquisition systems for, so if you have a, a chart recorder that's now on your furnace, most people are going to data acquisition systems, you know, some sort of SCADA systems. Uh, that recorder must have a 0.1 readability. And, of course, that, again, caused an uproar because, um, it, you know, that may be some big changes. Well, you know, we did some, you know, again, some research. You know, AMEC uh, is data-driven. So we just don't throw these changes out because, hey, we just think this is a good idea. Uh, you know, we're, we're data-driven. So the big thing with the, the point one readability is actually we were fixing a flaw that's been in the spec since the first day it was written, when it was just Rev-A. We did not make any, um, we, we allow for, for percentages of readings for your accuracy requirements. Even for, let's say, for instance, on your instruments that are on your furnace, we go calibrate a controller. And if it's in Fahrenheit, you're allowed plus or minus two. But if it's in Celsius, it has to be plus or minus 1.1. And if your instrumentation doesn't show one-tenth readability, how can you show compliance? So that's one of the reasons why we, we were trying to actually fix a flaw in the specification. Or we also allow for a percentage of reading. It's plus or minus two Fahrenheit or 1.1 Celsius or 0.2% of reading, whichever is greater. So let's say if you have a calibration point at 1,400 degrees, you're allowed actually an error of 2.8. If you can't show that decimal point readability, how can you show compliance? So that was one of the, the biggest issues. Originally, the first draft said all digital instruments uh, need to be uh, 0.1 readability, and then we backed that off to only say that the data acquisition system had to be uh, 0.1 readability. Uh, at the end of the day, the recorders or the data acquisition system is the proof. So if, as long as that shows the tenth of degree readability uh, and it meets the requirements, then you're good to go there. So uh, we did again looked at some uh, how many customers do uh, already are using uh, digital data acquisition system through NADCAP. There's actually a NADCAP checklist question that talks about uh, uh, chart speed verification, and if you answer that NA, you obviously have digital data acquisition. And at the time we did those, uh, looked at that data. It was 78% uh, uh, of the NADCAP heat treating uh, suppliers out there already had paperless systems. So on top of that, two years after the release of 2750, so as of June 29th of 2022, uh, we were not uh, this, 
you're not allowed to have paper chart recorders anymore. So everything is pushed to a digital data acquisition system two years after the release of the spec. So that's another big, uh, I'd say another one of the bigger changes uh, in when it deals with the instrumentation. So you have this 0.1 readability for your chart papers, and then two years after the release, uh, you have to go with a, a paperless system. All right, good, good, good. Now question three, what are the changes that were made in the calibration section? Yeah, there was a few changes when it came into calibration. One of the things that we added this time around was the calibration of timing devices. So a lot of the facilities have timers or clocks that they are basing their 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 times of at temperatures. And again, there was no requirement to calibrate these. So we did add a whole section on calibration of uh, timing devices. Um, so uh, there were some, again, pushback on that. So these people that have uh, uh, suppliers that have uh, control systems that are uh, basically computer controlled and their computers are um, uh, always synchronized by some sort of method in their server systems, you know, are they going to have to go out and buy a calibrated stopwatch and sit at their, you know, PC and, and time that you know, make sure it's within these new requirements. And we, we finally said, no, you don't have to do that. But if you could procedurally address how that whole system works, you know, that your, your server is always verified by, you know, uh, you know, Fort Campbell tones and in, in Colorado that you would be okay, you know, as long as you procedurally address that. So, and again, we were pretty loose on the requirements on there, the, the accuracy requirements, uh, some of these external devices that you have only need to be calibrated every two years, uh, even people's standards that they use. Uh, we, we do calibration of timers as well, and our standards are, are required to be calibrated every two years. We ended up just tossing these things away because it's uh, it's more expensive to send them back for recalibration than it is to buy new ones with a cert <laughs> yeah. on them. So we gave some of the suppliers a, you know, an easier way out of it, but we just wanted to address, again, something that has never been you know brought up in the specifications, not technically dealing in the pyrometry world, but it, you know, it does sit on furnaces, which, you know, we need to get these things looked at every now and then as well. So, um, and again, some of the um, uh, other changes really comes in the documentation. We did uh, change some things that need to be required for the documentation of, of uh, your calibration results. Um, so one of the things that we, we said is that, hey, we need you to uh, document the sensor that you're calibrating for that particular piece of equipment. For instance, you have a vacuum furnace. Most vacuum furnace control sensors are a noble metal type S or type R thermocouple, but then the load thermocouples that measure the parts inside might be set up as type K or type N. So we just wanted you to denote, hey, okay, the control system is type S and the load thermocouples are type K. So, you know, again, not real big game changers. It's not going to cause too many, you know, issues out there from the supplier base, just adding a, basically another column in your cal report to say what sensor you're calibrating. So we didn't go too overly crazy on the calibration portion. Uh, the one thing, kind of, kind of in the calibration field, but we did add a new instrumentation type. When you look at thermal processing equipment, it's broke down into two different, uh, two different sections. You have your furnace classification, which is your uniformity tolerance, and then you have what's called your instrumentation type. So you have class one through uh, six, and you have instrumentation a through E. And now we have now instrumentation D plus. Uh, this was more uh, for a saffron, uh, saffron aerospace. Uh, Cyril Vernault was very adamant that we add this D plus 
uh, instrumentation uh, because a lot of the Saffron, uh, how their specifications state is they want this extra sensor that's uh, basically three inches away from the controlling sensor uh, so they can measure, you know, if there's a big difference between these two sensors, then you can start to determine if there's drifting of your thermocouples. So we added this new D-plus instrumentation again didn't realize this was a big thing that's over in Europe, but it was nice to have someone like Cyril says, yeah, this is something that a lot of European suppliers use, and I'd like to see it in AMS 2750. So it was, you know, again, having this broad range of people on the specification, you can find out what's going on at different parts of the world. Yeah, that's for sure. So how about we close with the fourth part of thermocouples? Could you delve into the expanded section on offsets? Yeah, absolutely. So this has always been one of the areas in, especially when it comes to NAGCAP audits, is the use of offset. We basically broke it down into two different uh, types of offsettings that's allowed. We have what's called a correction offset, and that's basically either a manual or electronic means to um, bring an instrument back to a nominal temperature. And then we had a modification offset, which is just the opposite. It's either a manual or electronic uh, uh, offset or shift in the temperature to bring it away from nominal. So um, there was different ways that people have used these offsets, um, uh, either to, for instance, go into a facility and you're doing your calibrations of a controller. And, and uh, let's say the instrument's off linear uh, by two degrees. And people would use the offset to bring the instrument back to a nominal temperature. Instead of maybe doing a full factory calibration, they would just go into the instrument, hit some magic buttons and says, okay, I need to offset it minus two because my instrument was two degrees high. So that would be a correction offset. A modification offset generally is only uh, typically is going to be used for when you're doing a temperature uniformity survey, and let's say it's a skewed to one side of the of the uh, 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 temperature uh, of your temperature median to one side or the other. For instance, I always like to use this in my parameter training class. We have a temperature uniformity. I go in and do a temperature uniformity on your furnace at a thousand degrees. I have to hold it to be plus or minus 10. So when I get my final results and I look at everything with all my calculations, I have a survey that actually comes out to be 992 to 998. It's well within the plus or minus 10, but it's a skewed down to the lower end. So there's different things you can do to try to correct that, maybe change airflow, thermocouple location. But, you know, a lot of times what happens is you get a, a furnace that was made in the 1940s and you're trying to now make it comply to 19, or 2020 specifications. And the only thing you can do is go in and shift the controller away from the nominal to actually create it to read hotter. So in this case, in this example that I'm giving you, what I would do is go in and put in a electronic offset, which I'm going to go now tell the controller, hey, I want you to read colder now because that will drive more heat into the furnace. So I go in and put a minus five degree offset into the control. And now in theory, when you do the survey, now you're shifting all that temperature up by five degrees. So now if you look at that split, it would be 997 to 1003. Now it's more centered around your set point temperature. So that would be what's called a modification offset. So you're, you're, you're taking that TUS distribution and is skewing it to better center around a set point. So we really did some spelling on this. You know, offsets is, uh, you know, we, we put some maximums, the, allow, the amount of offsets that are allowed. We don't want people to go too crazy on these things. Um, so we did put some offsets in there. But it really, I think we did a great job of trying to spell out what these offsets are being used for 
and how you're supposed to document them and make sure that you're consistent with your practice every time. Again, procedures will have to be written to fully uh, understand how you're going to do the offset. Am I going to put it electronically? Am I going to do a manual offset? You know, I'll just shift my temperature up five degrees because I know my furnace is cold by five degrees. So it really, um, I think, with that whole new section in there, uh, I think we did a, I think we did a good job of of spelling that out for the uh, the suppliers. Good, good. All right, super. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I'm sure our listeners learned a lot from this conversation. Thanks, Doug. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the AMS 2750F. Look forward to chatting more with you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Heat Treat Radio. If you'd like to learn more or reach out to Andrew Bassett, you can go to their website, which is www.atp-cal.com, or you can email Andrew directly at abassett at atp-cal. That's A-B-A-S-S-E-T-T at atp-cal.com. We are always interested in new topics, so if you have thoughts on what content we should cover for future Heat Treat Radio episodes, please feel free to send me a brief email to let me know. You can also reach out if you want to be a sponsor of a future episode. If you haven't heard, this year's list of 40 under 40, class of 2020, of rising leaders in the heat treat industry is up. Head over to Heat Treat Today's website at www.heattreattoday.com slash 40 under 40 to see the post. Or simply type Heat Treat Today in your website and we should be the first thing that pops up. Again, plan your virtual networking and professional development event at www.furnacesnorthamerica.com. Don't miss this opportunity. Get the whole team involved and be ready to participate in money giveaways and more. Again, that's www.furnacesnorthamerica.com happening from September 30th through October 2nd. This and every other episode of Heat Treat Radio is the sole property of Heat Treat today and may not be reproduced in part or in whole without advance written permission from Heat Treat today. Jonathan Lloyd, the remarkable audio producer of this podcast, created and mixed most of the music that you heard today. See his professional work at www.jonathanlloydmusic.com. Thank you, Jonathan, for your efforts. Miss Bethany Funk is Heat Treat Radio's podcast editor. Thank you, Bethany. And I'm your host, Doug Glenn. Thanks for listening.